Well, good morning. I'm Scott Ashman. I'm one of the elders here. If you're uh, new um, in the recent weeks, you're probably um, wondering what's with this parade of elders and where are the pastors. Um, during the summers, our tradition is that the, uh, the ruling elders do a lot of the preaching to give our pastors a break. And then starting in September, uh, you'll start seeing um, our past. Well, right now we have pastor, but we'll have a second pastor starting in September. So that's what's, that's what's up with that. So we're talking today about three essential priorities for the thriving church. We're in the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts since about May, and we'll continue in this book until uh, September. I was thinking, isn't it fun to see young couples falling in love? Uh, They had that special radiant look in their eyes, you know, Uh, you get this bumbling guy who... um, all of a sudden, start to say sweet nothings to his, his beloved, you know, and, and the, the young woman, um, just everything he does is cute. Even when he makes a mistake, it's just so cute. It's wonderful. Uh, they think about each other all the time, look for ways to please one another. Sadly, however, this stage of the relationship does not last very long, very often. Uh, and when the couple has maybe been married for a few years, uh, they no longer relate to each other in quite the same way. Um, Reality has set in, and when the man does something wrong, it's no longer cute. He's driving her crazy, right? And the woman can no longer get her way simply by flashing her eyelashes at him. doesn't work anymore. And at this phase of the relationship, it's vital that a couple learns how to relate to each other in reality, in conflict resolution. And if they learn how to get through these tough times, they have laid the basis for a great marriage. However, if they don't get through that time, they may be headed toward divorce or a very unsatisfying marriage. As we consider churches, many of the same principles apply. Gene and I have assisted with um, three or four church plants over the years, um, and we've seen very similar types of dynamics as a young couple. Uh, it seems to happen all the same way all the time. First of all, you get this key visionary leader, call him the church planter, and he's just full of fire, and, and uh, he gathers a church around him, and all of a sudden they say, we're going to be a church. And after they declare themselves a church, spontaneous growth happens. Every time, people start showing up because they hear God is doing a new thing. And it's just joyful and, wow, this is a great new church. And then the burden gets too big on the church planter, so he raises up secondary leaders. And you get these other leaders, and they start coming in and using their gifts. And even more growth occurs until conflict happens. Happens every time. At this point in time, sometimes the secondary leaders start asserting their opinion and say, this is how we ought to be doing things. And they start fighting with one another. They start fighting with the church planter. And this is a critical time for a church. A church can either, at that point in time, resolve the conflict in a biblical way, or they can split or stop growing. And we've seen things happen in churches both the same ways. Churches stop growing because of conflict, or some learn how to work through the conflict. That's what we see in the church in Jerusalem, in Acts. We've seen this church that's just been growing leaps and bounds, but all of a sudden, conflict happens. Let's see what happens. 
Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we're going to look at, from this passage, three essential priorities if we want to be a thriving church. You see them in front of you. Conflict resolution, prayer and Bible teaching, and new leader development. You know, the, the, the passage starts out very encouragingly. It says, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. I mean, this, that was the story of the church. You know, church growth was not the issue. It was growing like crazy. You know, we started out with those 12 disciples and then 120 in the upper room. And it was just growing. And it said in the last chapter, 5,000 people were meeting together as the church. And why not? I mean, they had this incredible church planner named Jesus of Nazareth. And he had this helper called the Holy Spirit. And uh, the two of them, you know, raised up these 12 apostles. And we see the apostles performing miracles and preaching the word of God. And because of all this, the church was just, you know, explosive growth. I mean, 5,000 people. I mean, we seat about, I don't know, maybe we seat about four or 500 in here. Picture 5,000 people. What would you do with them all, you know? And when you have that kind of explosive growth, you're going to have problems, right? So whenever you have rapid growth, there are problems. It doesn't matter where you go. Every church has problems. And why is that? Obviously, because the church is made up of sinners, people, right? (laughs) Um, So you look at verse 1 again. It says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. That's the only word we get about what this conflict was all about. But you you get a few uh, ideas of what's going on here. I mean, this was a conflict between cultures. It was a conflict between languages. There was a natural division in the Church of Jerusalem. They were all Jews. They had come out of Judaism, but some were Hebrew-speaking and some were Greek-speaking. So there's this natural division, and that's what Satan often employs to try to divide a church, whether it be racial or, or language or cultural barriers. That's where Satan immediately tries to work. And this is a scary problem. I mean, you think about, you know, a church that is growing like that, but has this diversity within it, a little bit like us, right? We have a lot of diversity here. And because of that, Satan can try to exploit those, those differences to try to split a church. Well, the second thing we see in the conflict is it involved food distribution to widows. Now, we learned earlier in Acts chapter 2 
Uh, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as had need. Now, widows were usually the neediest people back in those cultures. And why was that? Because uh, in those days, women generally didn't work. They depended on their husbands for income, for livelihood. Um, and when the husband passed away, if there were no children to take care of their mother, widows were left in, in poverty. I mean, there was no Medicare. There was no Social Security. There was no food stamps. Uh, there was only the church. So distributing food to widows was critically important, just, to, just for daily existence for the widows. So we had this conflict we read about. And if the conflict was left to grow, you can be sure that there would have been a church for Jewish, I mean, for Hebrew-speaking Christians and a church for Greek-speaking Christians. But that wasn't what God wanted to do. And it's so common. You know, every church I've been to always thinks, oh, that could never happen here. You know, we're too spiritual. We love the Lord too much. You know, we... It could never happen here. And when conflict happens in a church, it's always such a surprise. How could this happen? It happens in every church, and yet it's always surprising whenever it happens. Church splits are very common, as you've probably known if you've been to other churches. We've been very fortunate, blessed, I will say, by God that we've never had a major church split in new life. Praise God for that. However, that we've had numerous people leave this church over the years because of unresolved conflict. Let's be, let's be honest about that. You know, people have a conflict, and rather than dealing with it, they just say, I'm out of here. Let me find somewhere else that I won't have conflict. Good luck with that. Um, so why is church conflict so common? Well, certainly it's because we're made up of sinners, and sinners want their own way. And the interesting thing I've noticed is a lot of church splits happen among those who ought to know better, the leaders, The leaders are the ones who lead the conflict. And why is that? Well, leaders like to have their own way. Leaders tend to be pretty selfish. Um, Well, I can preach about conflict resolution all day, my experiences with it, but I won't. But I want to offer to you just the thought that the Bible is not silent at all when it comes to conflict resolution. The Bible gives us very clear guidelines on what we should be doing when we find ourselves in conflict with one another. For example, Jesus told his disciples, what's the thing you have to do? Before you go and talk to someone, he said, get the log out of your own eye. Or in other words, examine yourself. What is your part of this conflict? He says, get, get the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to get the speck out of the other person's eye. In other words, you're probably more of a problem than the other person. Acknowledge that. Get the log out of your own eye. And then the second thing is, if someone has sinned against you, It says in Matthew 18, you have to go to them. Typically, when someone offends us or or sins against us, what do we do? We go to talk to everyone else. That's called gossip. But But Jesus very clearly said, if someone offends you, if someone sins against you, you go to them. And it's kind of interesting, too. Jesus also taught in the the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if someone, if you're aware that, that someone has something against you, you know, that you've sinned against them, whose responsibility is it to do something? You. So whether you were sinned against or whether you sinned against someone else, it's your responsibility to go to the other person. You can't get off the hook either way. But the fact of the matter is Christians rarely 
follow these biblical principles. It's just the facts. When we get really, really stinking mad at someone, do we say, let me look at the Bible and see what I'm supposed to do about this? Not too often. What we usually do is we think about how we learned to fight in the schoolyard or how our parents used to fight or how people of our culture fight. And we do that rather than saying, God, show me what I'm supposed to do with this conflict. Well, one thing the apostles... Let me... So, next slide here. This is what we usually do, right? Anger, revenge, gossip, making demands and ultimatums, giving the offender the silent treatment. We're really good at that. because That sounds so spiritual. Getting angry doesn't sound spiritual, but giving someone the silent treatment and not talking to them, that's, that's much more spiritual, right? Um, one thing the apostles did really well is they didn't ignore the problem. See, I'm a classic conflict avoider. And my first thing is, I bet you this, this problem will just go away. If I just kind of stay away from it, I'm sure it will burn itself out. That never works. Have you noticed that? When there's a conflict and you say, well, just, just let them deal with it. It doesn't work. And that's what the apostles didn't do that. They didn't stick their head in the sand. Instead, they gathered the church together and discussed how to resolve the conflict. And the thing I love is that they themselves didn't get personally involved in all of the details. They didn't say, what did you do? What did you do? What did, you, what did she say? What did she say? They didn't get involved with that. It's kind of cool. Um, oftentimes, leaders think, well, if, you know, if there's a, a conflict to be solved, I have to get in the middle of it and sort it out, like a, like a boxing referee. But that's not the case here. Uh, in verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will um, appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So so what they said is, we're not going to personally get involved. We're going to raise up some other folks, let them deal with it, so the problem will get dealt with, but we don't have to do everything. And that's a message to us as leaders. Leaders, you don't have to do everything. You can let other people get involved. The second essential priority for a thriving church, and we see this in, the work, in this passage, is the, is the priority of prayer and teaching the Bible, the Word of God. See, we see that the apostles had a very clear sense of what their calling was before God. It was to pray and to proclaim the Word of God. Their job was not personally to serve the widows and make sure the widows were getting served. It wouldn't be wrong if they did that, but that would cause them to neglect their primary calling, which was prayer and teaching the Bible. The word apostle means someone who is sent or a messenger. A messenger is someone who brings a message, right? And they are, they are the ones who were with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. They were the ones who um, saw the miracles. They, they heard Jesus' teaching. They watched his life. And after he died, they were the ones who saw him resurrected from the dead. So they, they had a unique calling that not everyone else had. They were the ones who saw it. They're the ones who witnessed Jesus. And they, their job, therefore, was to teach other people what they had seen. And they often saw Jesus withdraw and pray. And they saw how important it was to the ministry to pray constantly. And therefore, they had to say, we're not going to do all these other things. We're going to focus our energies on prayer 
and the word of God. You know, things aren't too different here. Um, Oftentimes, you know, we're in urban ministry and there are so many needs around us. I mean, you think about the needs of just educating children, feeding the poor, visiting the sick, uh, recovery from addictions, teaching English, community outreach, maintaining the building, accounting for the finances, um, teaching Sunday school, counseling. There's so many needs all around us, and, and the needs can start to drive our priorities. But what we see in these apostles, and it's a good lesson for us as well, is that every ministry we have has to be centered on prayer and the Bible, teaching the Word of God. When we start just trying to meet everyone's needs, but don't come back to that central core focus. And that doesn't matter if you're an elder, a deacon, a ministry leader, or anybody. If you've learned something in the Word of God, it's your responsibility to teach others. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a week or whether you've been a Christian for 60 years. We all have a responsibility to stay focused on the Word of God and prayer and let these other ministries, which are vital, flow from that. And that leads us to the third key priority, and that's new leader development. So we see, because the apostles had to stay focused on the word of God and prayer, um, they, had, they had to raise up new leaders. They couldn't do everything, and it was good for them to admit it. Look in verse 3 and verse 5 again. It says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose, they named the seven, the seven men. Um, these they set apart before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. Um, yeah, they laid hands on them. <laughs> um, so notice what they did here. They gathered the whole church together. Since food distribution was a concern of the entire church, they gathered all the people together. You know, they didn't just meet in a secret little room. Um, This communicated to the church that the problems that people were worried about was a concern to the leadership. Um, And it's interesting that they tell the church to appoint seven men. Now, if it was me, I would say, well, we're the leaders of this church. We should be able to pick the seven most godly people to do this ministry, right? But they don't do that. They just list the qualifications, and they go to the church and say, here's the qualifications, pick seven people to do this job. And the church did it. And I think that's significant, because uh, leaders have to constantly be um, giving away their responsibilities and say, look, we have, some, we have a need here. Church, let's fill this need. They didn't say, well, I'm just gonna, we're just going to appoint the people that we think could best meet the need. And I think that's a significant amount of wisdom by the leaders to, to tell the church to pick the people rather than just pick them themselves. And we see the qualifications that they, they, they put out here. You know, these were really the first deacons. It doesn't, the word deacon's not used in the passage, but these were the, um, you know, we talk about elders and deacons in the church. Well, these are really the appointment of, of the first seven deacons. Deacons are focused on mercy ministry. Uh, Throughout the 2,000-year history of the church, uh, the church has always focused on meeting the needs of the poor, the oppressed, the sick. Uh, That's the work of the deacons, the deaconesses of our church. We salute you guys that that lead us in this ministry. But just because the deacons and deaconesses lead us doesn't mean that the rest of us are off the hook. All of us have to be involved in mercy ministry 
Our deacons are the ones who lead us in that. The first qualification of the deacons that we see is a good reputation. They were supposed to be men of good character who could be trusted. They were already known both inside and outside the church. And why is that? Because this, this ministry of mercy was not just something that happened within the church. It was something the community could look in and see. They wanted to see who were these men who were responsible to feed the widows. Um, oftentimes when we go out and, and proclaim the gospel, you know, we knock on doors or, or stand on street corners and preach the gospel, the world oftentimes doesn't understand that. But when, when we take care of the needs of the poor, the world sits up and takes notice. And that's why it was so important that these men had, were men of good reputation. It's just they needed to be full of the Holy Spirit. At first, you scratch your head and say, well, why do you need to be full of the Holy Spirit to, to wait on tables? That doesn't sound like a spirit-filled kind of thing. Um, but you can see how important it was to the, to, the, to the apostles that they wanted people who were filled with the Spirit to do this work. This was not an unimportant work. Um, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We get a little hint of it from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, do not get drunk on wine. For this leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. When someone gets drunk on wine, what are they doing? They're letting alcohol control their actions. So if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, in contrast, what does that mean? You're letting the Holy Spirit control your actions. A person who's filled with the Spirit is submitted to the Spirit. They're daily asking for guidance. And how do you get filled with the Spirit? You ask for it. You know, it's so easy. Jesus said, you know, he, the Father in heaven is so good, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. Yet so often we go into our days and we don't ask. I don't ask for the Spirit. But that's what we need to do. Well, the third thing that these deacons had was a gift of wisdom. And when you first read this, again, it's like, how hard can it be to wait on tables? Well, if you know the work of the deacons in this church, there's a lot of wisdom required because there's so many needs that are expressed and it's so important to say, how can we best meet these needs? It's not just handing out food or just handing out money. Different people have different needs, and they have to be met in ways that are personal to each person, that would, in ways that would really help them and not just simply, here, you know, have something, because that's just not always what helps people the best. So we can see that these apostles took the, the problem of food distribution seriously, they prayed, and they laid hands on the men. Now, what does it mean that they laid hands on it? Basically, they said, you guys are an extension of us, the apostles. Sometimes we, you, you see us lay hands on people uh, here in the church. And that's what we're saying is you're, you're an extension of the ministry here when, when you have your hands, when people lay their hands on them. Why does new leadership development, why is it so hard? Well, usually it's because of the current leaders have a tough time giving leadership to others. They refuse to give control to others. Um, you see this in, in the church. You see it in perhaps your jobs at work. Um, leaders are afraid of losing authority. They say, oh, you know, if, if I give this job to someone else, maybe I won't be needed anymore. There's fear. Uh, sometimes leaders don't want to take the time to train other people to do their jobs. Again, because if I train someone else to do my job, I'll be out of a job. And there's fear there. But the fact of the matter is, when we take the time as leaders to train other people to be leaders, 
what, what's the end effect? It's to make everyone's job easier, right? But oftentimes, as leaders, we don't do that. The church needs every person. If you look around, I need you, you need me. It, it's, it's that simple. There's, there's, the church cannot afford to let people sit on the bench. That's just the fact, you know? Um, God has given the church such an enormous task. I mean, make disciples of all nations. That, just that, you know, small task. God has given us such a large task, we cannot afford to let anyone warm the bench, as it were. So if you are feeling, sitting in the church and saying, you know, I don't think this church really needs me. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Come talk to someone. Come talk to Pastor Tim. Talk to one of the elders. Um, forgive us, because we need you. We really do. Um, and leaders, um, our tired pastor, elders, deacons, you need other people to do your job. We all need to pass it along and, and even say, who's going to replace me when I'm gone? That needs to be in, in our minds, not in the back of our minds, in the front of our minds. We need to all be training our replacements. Not because we're trying to get, our, get ourselves out of a job, but because God has so much work for all of us to do. Two of the men the early church called were Stephen and Philip. We read about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was such a powerful witness that he became the church's first martyr. I mean, he was such a powerful witness, they said, we're just going to kill this guy. And he, he ended up being executed. And then we read about Philip in Acts chapter 8. He became the church's first missionary to Samaria and to an Ethiopian eunuch. So th- these guys were called to wait on tables, but their, their ministry extended far beyond that. And this would not have happened if the apostles said, okay, we're just going to you know, knuckle down and wait on the tables ourselves. They needed to raise up new leaders. So I want to kind of review our passage in Acts chapter 6. I'm not done yet, so don't close your Bibles just yet. But the passage started with a conflict that arose in the church. And the conflict was dealt with specifically by the apostles. They put their priority on the the ministry of the word and prayer. And they were able to do that by raising up new leaders. Now look at the, the results in verse 7. It says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I mentioned before that the conflict is a testing ground for the church. Churches often grow until they hit a conflict barrier, and then they stop growing. It's very common. But what we see is this church was able to work through that initial conflict, and it says they were able to continue to grow, and it pleased everyone. And that's what we need to do as a church. We, we need to be honest and say, where is there conflict? Maybe it's just little interpersonal conflicts. Maybe it's something large. But we have to be honest about it and deal with it. Uh, you know, it's easy to think that conflict is just part of life. That's just, you know, life is conflict. Um, But, you know, God did not create us that way. When God created us, he created us to be in a perfect relationship with him and in a perfect relationship with one another. But the reason we have conflict is we chose to rebel against God. 
right? And when we rebelled against God, the, the relationship with him was broken. The relationship with other people was broken. And if God just said, well, I don't know what to do about it. I'm just going to let it go. What would have happened to us? We would have ended up with a broken relationship with God forever. And where would that put us? In hell, right? Apart from God for all eternity. But God took the extreme initiative by sending his own son, the eternal second person of the Godhead, became flesh on our behalf because God wanted to restore the relationship between himself and his rebellious people. Jesus personally offered up his life because he wanted you to be restored in your relationship with God. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And I just want to point out a couple of phrases here in this passage. It says that we were justified freely. That's a big word. It just means we were made right by God, not because of anything we did. Freely. You didn't pay for it. God said, because of Jesus, you are right with him. And it says, by his grace. Grace means we received something that we didn't earn, right? By his grace. And finally, it says, to be received by faith. The way we receive this reconciliation with God is by believing. It's not by doing anything. It's by believing. I mean, what incredible good news we have, right? That we can have a relationship with God through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And because of... Because we are so greatly forgiven by our Heavenly Father, we can actually go to one another who have offended one another that we're in conflict with and say, you know what? It's okay that you're not perfect. I'm not perfect either. Will you forgive me? You know? And, and God is, because of grace, has made it possible for us to have our relationship with one another restored. Someone has said that grace is like the oil that that uh, lubricates the church's engine. This church would just come to a stop if it weren't for grace and people extending grace to one another. When I come to you and say, I'm not perfect, would you forgive me? And then someone else says, I'm not perfect either, will you forgive me? You know, and, and not just in general terms, for, the, for this specific word I spoke to you, for this particular thing I did for you. And reconciliation happens, it's a picture of what God did on the cross, when he reconciled himself to us. Our vision is to be a thriving family in the city, where the broken from all nations can be made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus. As a, as a thriving family, that's our vision, that's the New Life vision right there, um, we need to work through conflict. You know, in your own families, in your families, you know, husband, wives, kids, I'm sure there's conflict. There's conflict in my family. It happens, right? But a thriving family learns how to work through these things. And as a Christian family, the way we work through it is the way we saw our Heavenly Father work through it, through Jesus Christ. That's the only way we have to resolve these things together. 
So maybe today you're thinking of a conflict that you have with someone else. Maybe it's someone else in the church. Maybe it's someone in your family. Uh, maybe it's in your marriage. I don't know. Um, maybe God is laying something on your heart. Maybe you have a complaint against one of the leaders of the church. Uh, come, come talk to us. You know, these things, as I mentioned, they don't just burn themselves out. Conflicts are resolved when we take up the opportunity to talk to one another, take biblical steps toward resolving the problem. See, when we break down the walls between one another, we're just doing that because we saw what God did for us. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility between him, a perfectly holy God, and us, his sinful people. And we need to do the same thing, breaking down those those walls of hostility that happen between us in our lives. And we do it only because of what we saw Jesus do for us. And if we do, we can be confident, like it says in verse 7, I'll change the words a little bit, the word of God will spread and the number of disciples in Philadelphia will increase rapidly. If we follow the apostles' example, and most of all, follow Jesus' example, we will see that kind of growth happen because of the love that God puts one for another in this place. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are lost without you. We are completely hopeless without a relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him onto this earth to live a perfect life, to live a life that was pleasing to you, and then to die a death on behalf of us so that all of our sins could be put on him. And in return, you would give all the righteousness of Jesus to us. It's too wonderful for us to even truly comprehend. But we thank you for that, Lord. We pray, Father, as we now come to your table, as we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would bind us together with you. Help us to bind ourselves together with one another, Lord. I pray, Father, for, for your spirit to continue to uh, search our hearts, examine us, and if There are ways that we've offended a brother or sister in this assembly or outside of this assembly. Lord, I pray you'd give us courage to talk to them, to actually seek to resolve things in such a way that you would be glorified. Because that's our desire, Lord, that you would be glorified in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.